I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. That's right. We registered at the Smithsonian Institute. Can you do that? That'd be cool. (laughs) I would like to own these historical treasures. Thank you. I have all the richest friends in the world. (laughs) It's okay. Dorothy's red slippers? Don't mind if I do. (laughs) It's, It's my turn this episode. Yeah. And I feel like I'm letting the team down. I feel like I, I'm losing a lot of my uh, leftist cred from cheerleading a, a major corporation. Because today we're going to talk about the Haymarket Affair. Oh boy. Uh, the Haymarket Affair was a 1886 uh, rally, bombing, riot, trial, and execution. Uh, it all kicked off uh, the major events on May 4th. 1886. Are, uh, are you sure this isn't my episode? I'm pretty sure. I, I don't know. That I, description seems like what I would do. I remember writing all these notes. Are you sure? I remember reading the books in my lap. <laughs> I don't know. Look, I get to do Chicago <laughs> tragedies too sometimes. <gasps> oh, fine. It's interesting to first note that the label Haymarket Affair is so neutral. Like, people don't call it the the Haymarket Riot or the Haymarket Massacre, because those are some charged terms that inherently take sides. Yeah. So it's just an affair. A thing happened. It sure did. And it's newsworthy. Someone cheated on someone else. (laughs) I saw you, Haymarket, Mm. hanging out with Logan Square. Oh, Mm, boy. mm, mm. Nothing good's going to come of that. It is the least charged word you can use. Affair so. could just be like some secrets going around. No one getting shot. <laughs> well, there are definitely people getting shot. Oh, yeah. And we're going to oh, get yeah. that. Uh, this is the 130th anniversary year. It was commemorated earlier by a uh, uh, independent musical called Haymarket, the Anarchist Songbook by Alex Higginhauser and David Kornfeld, produced by the Underscore Theater Company. I know someone who did choreography for that. Yeah. If this was the last topic, we could sing It's a Small World, but instead we just have to point out that it is a small world. Yeah. In fact, David, the composer, was very, very kind and allowed us the use of archival recordings of one of their performances uh, to use as our interstitial music. So rather than our usual fantastic music from Thylacinus, you'll hear uh, fantastic music from this show. Being a stage recording, you're, you're going to hear footsteps, you're going to hear room tone, but it's good stuff, and I think you're going to enjoy it all the same. So, uh, let's start with some background, shall we? Okay. Give me background. <laughs> 1880s Chicago, a major industrial center, uh, blessed by geography, demographics, and a whole lot of cash coming in from the railroads. Yeah. I mean, St. Louis can build an arch, but Chicago was the real gateway to the West. Yeah, it was. It was the hub of the railways, hog butcher of the world, all these Upton Sinclair things. Look, look at any train map. To this day. Yeah. To this day. It all comes here. And then it all goes out. So 1880, the, the census immediately before the year we're talking about uh, showed a population of over 500,000 people in Chicago. Now, uh, in 1860, 20 years earlier, it was less than a quarter of that. So the, the population was exploding, like a major boomtown situation. A lot of that number comes from an influx of laborers, including German and Irish immigrants. Now, that's going to cause a lot of ethnic tensions because these people don't share a common language, uh, much less a common culture 
or neighborhoods. Uh, the city was very, very segregated, which remains to this day. Yeah. There's a history of race wars being fought over certain avenues because uh, that's where the borders fell. Yeah. Chicago's still very, very segregated, less so between white ethnic groups like, like it was uh, up until the 60s or so, and more between different races, but segregation uh, is still the rule of the day. And, you know, fear of immigrants taking our jobs is still prevalent in the, the American working class. Yeah. It's just they aren't afraid of the ones speaking German uh, these days. So uh, as this center of industry, uh, all these factories, uh, all these railroads, stockyards, etc., it becomes the center of the labor movement and uh, where the labor, labor organizers are, the strike breakers and uh, repressive side of management is uh, just all right together in one little pocket here on the shores of Lake Michigan. <laughs> Uh, during an 1877 railroad strike, the Chicago Times called for hand grenades to be thrown against gutter snipes and loafers. That escalates fast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah just throw those at them. <laughs> well, the, the Citizens Association, a collection of wealthy and, and civic-minded uh, uh, folks, bought a Gatling gun and 296 Springfield rifles to protect the city. Okay. From these anarchists running wild. These foreign agitators. Uh, the police were taught to march in military drills and practiced with a cannon, which was also bought by the Citizens Association. Of course. Because you need a cannon. Uh, in 1884, Joseph Medill wrote an editorial arguing that poisoning tramps would improve the city. Would you like to read that? Uh, uh, an excerpt from that. Sure. Dear? Give that over here. Let me read this. This, he said, produces death within... A comparatively short time is a warning to other tramps to keep out of the neighborhood, puts the coroner in a good humor, and saves one's chickens and other portable property from constant depredation. It's very logical. I'm sure I'm sure there was a build-up here, but it just seems like, let's go to the extreme. Well, yeah, it's, it's only an hour-long show. We gotta cut to the chase. <laughs> Diving uh, right in. Writing like that is how Joseph Medill got the Northwestern University School of Journalism named for him. I was going to say, is that named after him, a guy that wants to poison people? Uh, you, you become a newspaper magnet in the 1880s, you get things named after you. In fact, uh, any wealthy person we're going to talk about, you're going to recognize the name because the names are slapped on buildings all across the city. Every last one of them. I feel like there needs to be new standards in naming stuff after people. Did they kill someone? They don't get it named after them. Do they want? Did they mention wanting to kill people? They don't get it named after them. Did they think about killing someone? They don't get it named after them. Uh, sorry, Medill. Did they pay someone else to kill someone? They don't get it named after them. It's now the History Honey School of Journalism. Uh, sorry about that. Now, now that we've seen sort of the some of the prevalent mood in this sort of tinderbox of uh, strained relations among the city. Let, let's get to some major individuals. People who you're going to have to know before we get to the meat of the story. Okay. Albert Parsons was a socialist reformer who moved to Chicago from Texas with his wife Lucy. Uh, he became the head of the English-speaking side of the Working Men's Party of the United States uh, in Chicago and their chief orator. His job was uh, to organize, to promote their interests, and to be the headlining speaker at, at all these rallies. 
He was a uh, uh, typesetter by trade. He, he worked in papers. He was fired from the Chicago Times and taken into City Hall to be intimidated by the chief of police in front of about 30 industrial leaders. Uh, the chief of police is like, you know, you better leave town because we got a room full of people here who, uh, if you don't, would be pretty happy to see you hanging from a lamppost by the end of the day. Uh, so he, he left this meeting uh, determined to stay and keep promoting the interests of the working man as he saw them. Uh, left and applied for a job at the Tribune instead. So two thugs grabbed him, dragged him down five flights of stairs, and threatened to blow his brains out if he en- ever entered the Tribune building again. Oh, goodness. So he went into uh, self-publishing. He started making his own papers from then on. Probably a good you idea. Know, if your boss wants you killed, be your own boss. He uh, he ran for alderman, county clerk, U.S. Congress. He even ran for president, despite being under 35 and technically ineligible. Oh, man. It's sort of a symbolic thing. But, you know, you, if you're going to have a party, you got to have a presidential candidate. And Albert Parsons, he's our man. Uh, like I mentioned, in 1884, he first published The Alarm, a weekly anarchist newspaper. Around 1880-ish, he started uh, considering himself more of an anarchist than a socialist, uh, while his uh, initial push was for reform at the ballot box. He saw, uh, as part of his drive for the eight-hour day, that the working man is shut out of politics, because if you're working 10, 12, even 14 hours a day, six days a week, when do you have time to vote? Yeah. When do you have time to become an educated voter? Yeah. So the eight-hour day for him was uh, a stumbling block. Like, until we get that, we can't even worry about using our numbers at the ballot box. Makes sense. Going to have to get reformed by other means. Hey, anarchists, let's hang out. Speaking of anarchists, August Spees was an immigrant anarchist shopkeeper. Uh, he joined uh, Lehr und Verein, the Educational and Defense Society. This is a group of about 30 guys who would uh, open carry, exercise their Second Amendment rights, and talk about, hey, uh, if the police want to mess with strikers, uh, we're packing heat. So watch your back, cops. Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> He was ejected from the Socialistic Labor Party for his anarchist views in 1880. He also became a publisher for the uh, Arbeiter Zeitung, a German-language anarchist newspaper, uh, in the same year, 1880. Now, th- this was a paper that predated him. He didn't found it. He just took over. Uh, and under his uh, publishership, <laughs> uh, he built the circulation to 20,000, the most popular German-language paper in Chicago. Good for him. Good for him. What an enterprising capital. I mean, anarchist. Anarchist. <laughs> Even anarchists got to pay for dinner. Uh, John Blackjack Bonfield, on the other side of this issue, was a police inspector uh, during the events. He earned his nickname for his readiness to club people in the streets. Of course. Now, he got his position in the police force due to political connections, which is just how you became a cop in the 1880s. Yeah. Not just in Chicago and not just the corrupt ones. Like, this was a patronage position. That's how it works. Yeah. Uh, But he was one of the bad ones, like, for sure. (laughs) This this guy's awful. Uh, he, He built his reputation during the 1885 streetcar strike by attacking everyone present, including bystanders, women, children, and the elderly. 
Uh, he set a 24-hour curfew and clubbed and arrested anyone he thought looked suspicious, including men waiting for a streetcar downtown to get to work or local merchants uh, just hanging out because that is where they work. Uh, a man who tried to ask Bonfield a question was beaten so badly he died a few years later, allegedly from those injuries. Yet yeah, he gotta keep his job. Well, uh, Mayor Harrison wanted to fire him, wanted to fire him real, real bad after all this. Uh, in his defense, Bonfield said, a club today to make them scatter may save us the use of a pistol tomorrow. He, he's really beating these people for their own safety. So, so that way he doesn't have to shoot them. Right. Oh, yeah. Very logical. Of course. Those connections that got him uh, in the force in the first place pulled some strings, and rather than being fired, he was promoted to inspector. Of course he was. Now, also from the police, we have Chief Ebersold. He was appointed by Mayor Harrison to shore up the German vote. Uh, he'd appointed a whole lot of people with Irish last names. He needed somebody with a German one. Bonfield really, really wanted to be police chief, though. There's a lot of tension between these guys. I, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's a lot of tension be between him and, like, everyone. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, I'd want to get along with him as much as I could, because he's he earned a nickname from beating people senseless. <laughs> I don't want to get on his bad side. Maybe I'm spineless, but I'm also concussionless. So there we go. Now, to understand the Haymarket Affair, you need to know about the push for the eight-hour day. Uh, in 1884, a national labor organizer, Samuel Gompers, set a deadline of May 1st, 1886 for a general strike if the eight-hour day was not universally adopted. Uh, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. So goes the slogan. Uh, if that sounds familiar, it's because, yeah, it's basically what we got uh, 130 years later. Unless you work in retail. Yeah. They are abuse that to no other. Or software or any or other software. sort of... Uh, uh, IT development any, sort of any thing. Any place that's not just strictly open 9 to 5, <laughs> you're screwed. Yeah. That's the the ticking clock. He gave he gave uh, uh, the capitalists of the world two years uh, to get these ducks in a row, right? Uh, Cyrus Hall McCormick, who you might know from McCormick Place and many other things yeah. named McCormick in this here city. Yeah. Uh, he increased profits at the McCormick Reaper Works by the same way anybody uh, increases profits, cutting pay, aggressive union busting, and replacing workers with new machinery. Workers didn't like that so much. And uh, there's a series of demonstrations, walkouts, etc. In 1885, uh, the workers won an agreement that they couldn't be fired for organizing a union. Uh, however, McCormick continued to hire Pinkerton agents to go undercover into these unions and expose their organizers for retribution. Mm. Labor clashes at the McCormick plant escalated, and in February 1886, we are knocking on the door of that strike deadline. About 1,500 employees were locked out, and Chief Ebersold gave McCormick 350 police to do with as he wished. Uh... So here comes May 1st, uh -huh. 1886. Uh -huh. The eight-hour day is not implemented. So, Albert Parsons in Chicago leads a march of 30,000 down Michigan Avenue in the first May Day celebration. Good! 
Uh, that's the plan. Stick to the plan. Over 340,000 people in Chicago joined the general strike. Dang! Uh, and there are hundreds of thousands walking out the same day in Milwaukee, Cleveland, New York, uh, Buffalo, Philadelphia, uh, Detroit. It is a national general strike. May 3rd, strike still going on. Factories are grinding to a halt. And August Spees... Uh, is asked to address the Labor Shovers Union in their own strike for the eight-hour day, their share of this general strike, which happens to be near the McCormick Reaper Works. Uh, some of the lumbermen, after he's done speaking, joined in the McCormick picket line and harassed scab workers as they left the Reaper Works. Uh, 75 policemen and five patrol wagons were called to break this up. Spees was trying to convince people to calm down and, like, Please stop throwing bottles at these people. It was a victory against the scabs. They were all pinned inside the factory and couldn't leave for fear of bricks to the head. But uh, they didn't listen to Spies in part because a lot of them were Czech immigrants who did not speak English or German. Oh. So he had a bit of a trouble getting through to them. Yeah. Uh, the crowd threw stones at the police. The police shot into the crowd. Two strikers were killed. Many were wounded. Uh, no police were harmed. So that's the background, and after this quick break, we'll get to some of the events themselves. The Alarm! Edited by Albert Parsons. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that song. Here's some more facts. 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 August Spees just witnessed a crowd of policemen shooting indiscriminately into a crowd of working men. Mm -hmm. He's not very happy about this. No. He goes straight to his newspaper office and writes a circular that begins, Working Men to Arms. One of the other workers in the office adds revenge in bold type right above it. And here is what it looks like. Revenge! Your master sent out their bloodhounds, the police. They killed six of your brothers at McCormick's this afternoon. See, Spees uh, left immediately and was under the impression that six men had died. Although now, with the, the fog of war cleared, we know it was only two. So there's all these statements. They killed them to show you, free American citizens, that you must be satisfied and contented with whatever your bosses condescend to allow you or you will get killed. When you ask them now to lessen your burden, he sends his bloodhounds out to shoot you, kill you, destroy the hideous monster that seeks to destroy you, to arms we call you to arms. This is a passionate plea to, you know, join uh, their cause because it is either live free or die, right? Yeah. I think that's a New Hampshire state motto. If you're from New Hampshire, August Spies has got your back. Now, uh, the German at the bottom half of the page, the, the German translation used even stronger language. Or so I'm taking my source's word for it. I don't read German. <laughs> so 12,000 of these were distributed. And, I mean, we're, we're talking 
19th century printing. So there's a lot of hand cranking, a lot of hand setting. That's that's a lot of pieces of paper. Overnight. Overnight, yeah. Uh, they they pulled the newsies. They sure did. <laughs> I'm just uh, thinking about newsies during all of this. There will be parallels. See, they, they were soaking the scabs. Carrying the banner. Soak them scabs. Uh, Soak them for crutchy. <laughs> well, I guess in this case it would be deady. Shot in the heady. Uh, oh, oh, that's bad. Some, some of these revenge circulars, as they came to be known, made their way to a meeting of German anarchists at Griefs Hall, uh, which included George Engel, Adolf Fischer, and Gottfried Waller. Uh, they were there already planning a rally for the next day, because they'd heard the news from other sources, uh, at Haymarket Square. Now, it's it wasn't their usual meeting place. It was an open area to fit an even larger group. And uh, an open area means that they couldn't be bottlenecked in by police. Like in Newsies. Right, right. Like in the newspaper thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they got trapped. That wasn't going to happen here. No. Adolf Fischer ordered 25,000 handbills announcing the rally to be printed and distributed. Now, the first few hundred uh, to come off the press included the line, Working men, arm yourselves and appear in full force. Uh, when Spee saw this, he threatened not to speak unless it was removed. Apparently, after he printed his handbill, uh, he started having second thoughts about violent language. Yeah, that makes sense. You're you're riling them up already. When it t- in the, in the time it took to print all of these thousands of handbills, he's like, ah, yo, let's reprint. This. These are gonna end up in some other people's hands. Uh, including Chief Ebersold. Uh, you, you cannot hide a demonstration of 25,000. Yeah. So uh, Chief Ebersold sent 84 police under Bonfield's command to the displaying station about half a block away from the Haymarket Square. Uh, a detachment of 100 was added to the 3rd Precinct, and plainclothes detectives were sent into the crowd. Mayor Harrison issued them a permit for the demonstration and attended it himself. It is an election year, and he loves that working men's vote. Where is in location? I have a general idea of where it is. Okay, take the Clinton stop on the Pinker Green Line uh-huh. and go one block west. Oh, I saw, thought it was farther south. Nope. Uh, well, the square itself is on the south side of that block, but the north end of the block, it's bound by Lake Street. So that's where the rally is, that's who's going, that's how it came to be. Here comes some facts about the rally. So it's scheduled for uh, the evening. August Spees shows up around 8.15 late. Because he's a German, uh, uh, he's there to do his speech in German, and the German speakers always come after the English speakers. Uh, He got there to see only about two to 3,000 people in a square that could hold around 10 times that many. Not an encouraging turnout. Uh, but then it was only announced earlier that day. Yeah. yeah you you got to give him credit for that. So he's like, all right, somebody needs to talk. So he gets up on this wagon that they had wheeled out uh, for speaker's use uh, and does his speech in English. He sends someone out to get, find Albert Parsons, uh, who is in another meeting uh, organizing a, a, a different group of laborers. Uh, to just get Al over here. He's got to do his speech. Get the big speech man. Meanwhile, I'll hold down the fort. 
So then Parsons arrives, and he does his speech for about an hour. Mayor Harrison's there at the rally, listening. So far, he hasn't heard a thing he found objectionable, and he decides to leave. So he goes down to the displaying station, tells Bonfield, just send all your men home. These guys aren't doing anything. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure, I, yeah, I saw the flyer, but they aren't saying that now. There, there's nothing objectionable being said at this rally. Bonfield declined to send anybody home because he, he said something about a rumor that th these men might walk toward the river and join in another demonstration that could turn ugly. And like, yeah, okay, whatever. In later testimony, a witness said he overheard Bonfield saying something else at the station. And would you mind reading this quote, too? Sure. The trouble there is that these anarchists get their women and children mixed up with them, and we can't get at them. I would like to get 3,000 of them in a crowd without their women and children. I would make short work of them. Well, ain't that just nice? Uh, that is allegedly what Bonfield said when the mayor wasn't around. I don't doubt it. <laughs> he seems like he would. So meanwhile, back at the square, Samuel Fielden, uh, the next speaker, begins his speech. Uh, turns out to be the last of the night. Uh, Parsons and Adolf Fisher, one of the organizers, had already left for a furniture workers meeting. Time's getting late. Rain's coming in. Only about 300 people remained in the crowd. Uh, Samuel Fielden ended his speech by saying the workers should do everything they can to wound the law, everything to, quote, impede its progress. Now, those plainclothes detectives in the crowd hear this and like, Mm, sounds fishy enough to me. They report it to Bonfield, who immediately orders three divisions to Haymarket on the double. Oh, that's good. And well... Uh, police Captain Ward ordered immediate dispersal. Phelan said, but we're peaceful. And the captain repeated his order, and so Phelan says, All right, we will go, and begins to step down from that uh, wagon. At this point, a bomb was thrown from the alley that the rally was edged up against and exploded among the police lines, shattering windows all around the square. This is the major event that uh, brought this rally into history. Police, under attack, begin firing blindly into the crowd. Many police and demonstrators are wounded, including uh, the final speaker, Samuel Fielden, and Henry Spees, who took a bullet for his brother, August. Uh, is one of those things where a police officer is leveling his gun and then heroic Henry grabs it and pulls it down. But while pulling it down, he takes uh, the shot to the groin himself. Ooh. There is no accurate count for civilian casualties. Somewhere between four and ten dead and over 50 injured. 25 policemen were wounded and seven died. Now, only one uh, officer died that day, the rest in the following weeks, the final one over a month later on June 14th. Now, you're going to see, if you look this up, you know, a bomb went off, seven police officers died. Technically true, but only one officer's cause of death was solely the bomb. The rest were either also shot or only shot and had no injuries from the bomb. So the question is, between 300-ish demonstrators and uh, 75 to 100 police officers, who had more guns that night? The cops. Yeah, exactly. Now, I'm not saying that every officer was hit by friendly fire, but I am saying, and uh, the historical record agrees with me, quite a few of them 
uh, very easily a majority, probably a large majority, was uh, friendly fire in the confusion in the crossfire. Yeah, I mean, if you're just firing blindly into a crowd with smoke from a bomb, and also firing at plainly clothed people, that, yeah. like cops that are dressed normally, like you don't know, you're just shooting at people. There we have it. There, there's screaming, there's running, there's bleeding. There it is. Uh, sure this isn't my episode? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of the talking. I feel like this one's mine. Just the theme. <laughs> yeah. So immediately the police begin a crackdown. Uh, news travels fast and arrests travel faster. Uh, they set out to arrest anyone they could possibly tie to the event. Parsons gets uh, a guy to loan him five bucks so he can buy a train ticket. That man is arrested for doing uh, someone else a favor. Uh, Chief Ebersold wanted to defuse tensions and downplay the event to maintain the workers' vote. Because, uh, you know, he gets his job from Harrison. Bonfield wants to ride that wave of hysteria all the way to Ebersold's what? job. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he's the, like, yes. There is a reign of terror for eight weeks of arrests. Any connection to organized labor uh, was seen as probable cause. Bonfield arrested August Spees, Samuel Fielden, Adolf Fisher, Oscar Nieb, Michael Schwab, the entire printing staff, and some others who were just hanging out at the Arbiter Zetung offices the next day. George Ankle was also arrested on May 5th elsewhere. Nieb, uh, who was in that roundup at the Arbiter Zetung, was released after being questioned, then arrested again on the 27th. What? <laughs> yeah, just being questioned and let go is, isn't enough. We need to arrest every uh, working person in this city who has done anything but, say, 12 hours for dirt pay. Thank you, sir. May I have another? <sighs> so then we get to uh, Louis Ling, who was not uh, at that planning meeting the, the day before and not at uh, Haymarket Square at all. But he was arrested on May 14th because he's a young, hot-headed anarchist. Uh, he's a 22-year-old radical who enjoyed making bombs in his spare time. Oh, yeah. Including oh. several the morning of the Haymarket rally. Like he was, his hobby. He was never proven to be there, and his uh, uh, alibi, which stood up, was, I w couldn't have been there throwing the bomb. I was at home making bombs. <laughs> Louis Ling is, is a that's, sweet, special boy. That's, that's kind of great. Michael Schwab, one of those uh, planners at Greece Hall, uh, his brother-in-law, Rudolf Schnaubelt, was arrested, questioned, and released. He fled to South America. Maybe a good idea. Maybe. I mean, the weather's great. This made him the number one suspect for the bomber, simply because he ran. Uh, oh, that would happen. I mean, it's not like they could get fingerprints. Nobody saw who threw it. They're just grasping at straws. And, and if you're that afraid... the bomb exploded. If you're that afraid, he must be guilty of something... That that was the evidence against uh, Schnaubelt, which then redoubled uh, the attention on his brother-in-law, Schwab. Uh, I guess this is two in a row for me that are full of revolutionary Germans. Yeah. These eight weeks of arrests wind up with Parsons, Spees, Fielden, Ling, Schwab, Fischer, Engel, Nieb, Schnaubelt, and Seliger uh, indicted for murder, conspiracy to murder, and unlawful assembly. I think I got a new tongue twister there for my kids. Uh, say all Schnabel, those names. Uh, Neve Schnabel Silliger. Neve Schnabel Silliger. Neve Schnabel Silliger. Yep. So before we get to that trial, have another song. 
So, so did you like that one? Like what? The, the song? I haven't heard it! You haven't <laughs> played them for me yet! I was expecting you to join me in this improvisational wonderland. Oh yes, they were wonderful! I love them so much! Speaking of, you know, holding the banner high... That's, that's a different musical there. Well, how would I know? You haven't played me the song yet! Open the gates and seize the day. So, so where were we? People being arrested. That's with right. With tongue twister names. Yes. Parsons, Spees, Field and Ling, Schwab, Fisher, Engelnieb, Schnabelt, and Seliger indicted for murder, conspiracy to murder, and unlawful assembly. I guess in case the first two charges didn't stick. Got, gotta have that other one just in case. So Schnabelt couldn't be tried as he was somewhere in South America. And Seliger was given immunity for his testimony. He, he wants state's evidence. Uh, so that brings us down to a field of eight defendants. What was his testimony? Like, what did he say? Well, he was like, one of the people, other people. He was one of the people at Greaves Hall. And he's like, yep, they definitely planned a bunch of stuff we're about to talk about when we get to the charges. Okay. The people present at both Griefs Hall and the, the Haymarket, whatever you want to call it, the affair, going back to, to that question at the top. Uh, number one, Adolf Fisher. He was there for both. Number two, sort of Samuel Fielden. He was not at the Monday meeting, uh, but he was speaking at an event in a different part of Griefs Hall. Oh, okay. So, so he was there. If you're the prosecution, you can say, hey, how big is this hall? You could have talked to a guy. Uh, now, people present at neither. Uh, Louis Ling. He didn't go to this meeting. No. Nope. He, he didn't go to this rally. He was home making bombs. Exactly. Probably both days. Uh, Oscar Nieb did not even know there was a Haymarket rally until the next day. What? How do you charge that? Uh, Michael Schwab, he was at the rally for about five minutes, though, looking for Spies. So he, he was sort of at one of the two ev main events. Yeah. Enough for the judge. Enough for this judge. Yeah. Spoilers. So at the trial, Parsons returned from hiding in Wisconsin and turned himself in to be tried in solidarity. What a fool. Solidarity, solidarity. Solidarity forever. That's a third musical. <laughs> also about labor, so I'll, ah! I'll let it ride. Well, that, if you just play me the songs, I would know. That's about a hundred years off in the other side of an ocean, but I will let it go. It's a good musical. <laughs> yes. So the eight defendants were tried as a unit, not individually. Oh. There, there was a motion to have them in two sets of four, but that was thrown out. The jury pool was handpicked by the bailiff, not randomly chosen. Of course. Uh, none of the jurors were immigrants. None were laborers. Of course. Some of the uh, jury had explicit police ties. <laughs> of course. Now, according to Haymarket, the anarchist songbook, one of the jurors was Ebersold's nephew, one was the Pinkerton agent, and the jury foreman was the brother of an officer killed at the square. I don't think you can do that. I'm not saying I doubt their sources. I'm just saying I haven't seen them. That's all. And I would like it to be because those are fascinating facts. The prosecution's case now is that the meeting at Griefs Hall hatched a conspiracy to incite a riot, and the riot would incite a general revolution, an uprising. Uh, and some of the men were in constant contact with Ling to provide their bombs. 
I just imagine Ling, like, sitting at home in his living room on the floor, like, making bombs like they're toys, completely unaware of anything else going on. <laughs> like, like, playing with Legos. Yeah. That's what I imagine he's doing. Exploding Legos. Unaware of any of this. This poor kid getting tied into it. Going back to what uh, we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, the, the prevailing mood, you can see that everyone involved believed in some sense, to some degree, they were on the cusp of a revolution. The, the anarchists, the socialists, they- One they, more day for revolution, we will nip it in the butt. That was not about labor. No. That was mostly about God. <laughs> Lots about God. So the, the anarchists, the socialists- they, they're seeing themselves on the cusp of like the, this moment of infinite possibility, uh, where they can turn around the social order, not intending to kill, uh, capitalists in the streets, but to kill the system that creates both the millionaire and the pauper. Or at least that's what they said in their highfalutin speeches. You know, I, I can't speak for everybody in the movement. Uh, meanwhile, the, the wealthy industrialists, feared, uh, well, they're going to have to set up a, a guillotine on State Street and we're all first against the wall kind of revolution. People with pitchforks and torches coming into their Prairie Avenue mansions. Yeah. This courtroom is basically where this fight is being fought in, in the most direct sense. So the case against Nieb hinged on the fact that he owned a $2 share of stock in the Arbiter Zitong, which is clearly... The mouthpiece of the revolution. Oh, yeah. And he happened to be there in the offices on the May 5th raid, because he's friends with these people. He, he is himself an active anarchist. Every action of the labor movement was entered as evidence of a plan for violent revolution. Of course. I, of course. They just, just look at some of the language we read yeah. from, from these flyers. You, you put that in front of a, a less than open-minded <laughs> jury. What's it, what's it going to sound like? Don't sound like you want to bear arms. Don't say that. It uh, doesn't help. Uh, I believe they even brought out uh, articles written by uh, Lucy Parsons, who is the most fascinating figure in this whole story that I wish I talked a lot more about. Lucy Parsons is amazing. She would write articles uh, for her husband's paper about how good it is to know how to make dynamite because it's cheap and possession is not illegal, and sometimes you have to throw it in a streetcar full of cops. Always good to have that dynamite in your purse. You just never know. You never you know. You just never know when you might need it. <laughs> You've got your, your compact, your, your tissues, your just-in-case tampon, your dynamite. Do not get those two confused. They might look similar. They didn't have tampons then. That's true. Witnesses for the state had their testimony accepted as truth automatically, even when they were directly contradicted by other evidence. Even when the things they were saying could not possibly be true, even when they uh, were demonstrated to be people more than willing to lie under oath for money. Yeah. On the other hand, Mayor Harrison and dozens of others testified for the defense in, with sworn statements and affidavits. Uh, this cost Mayor Harrison the 1886 election. It's okay, he would be mayor again during the fair. And he gets a street named after him. Yeah, and he gets shot in the closing <laughs> cer ceremonies of the fair. Yeah. Uh, after four hours of jury deliberation, they found all eight defendants guilty. Seven were sentenced to death and Neeb to 15 years in prison. So, I mean, they did figure out that he didn't do that much. He just did enough. 
He did 15 years worth of conspiracy to murder. Neeb requested the death penalty as well, saying it was better to be executed than to die by inches. His request was denied. As a closing statement, August Spees read a 23-page speech, which took quite some time. Yeah, I would think so. I would think that would take a while. Uh, I guess he was just hoping that they would, like, change their minds because they were tired. He wanted to enter into the record his eloquent argument that uh, this was a witch hunt before that was a common term. It was totally a witch hunt. That they were being executed for uh, their beliefs, that the law would bend to serve the interests of the industrialists regardless of what is written in uh, the Constitution and the laws of Illinois. And he compared himself to other men killed for speaking truth, like uh, Galileo, Jesus, and some others. Well, if you're gonna compare, you gotta compare big. Yeah. If it's your last public speech before you're executed... Yes, I am like Jesus. Go go for Jesus. You're never gonna have a second chance. Lock that in my brain, just in case. Compare yourself to Jesus if it's the end. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So as time passes, the fury against the conspirators dies down, and it became clear to many that their trial was an unfair circus sideshow of a trial. Uh, Appeals were all unsuccessful, but a campaign began to petition Illinois Governor Oglesby for clemency. Oglesby. 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 Uh, That campaign was led by a banker named Lyman Gage, And then his business from Chicago's industrialists just sort of dried up. Mm, Yeah, that would happen. Formerly wealthy banker Lyman Gage. Fielden and Schwab had their sentences commuted to life in prison on November 10th, 1887. The other, now we're down to five, refused to sue for clemency because it would mean admitting guilt. That's like step one. Yeah. Yep, you're right. I'm guilty. Please don't kill me. It's basically how clemency works. Yeah. Here's an interesting uh, anecdote. Rosina Clark Van Zant was a young, attractive woman. She was the daughter of a wealthy drug manufacturer in the city, and she attended the trial every day, dressed in her Sunday best, and she fell for one Mr. August Spees. Oh my! She fell smitten with this long-winded man. Uh, she visited him in prison continually. She helped him write his autobiography from prison. Uh, the Cook County Sheriff got sick of this uh, business. And cut off her visitation rights. So, she and Spee's married. Oh, how'd they marry if she couldn't be there? The the sheriff, yeah, would not let him out to get married. Heavens no, would not let her in to marry him. But at the time, proxy weddings were legal in Illinois. You could have someone stand in your place. Oh. So, August's brother Henry uh, basically took a bullet again. Uh, (laughs) A metaphorical one this time. Always doing things. What a good brother. Such a good brother. (laughs) And so uh, from that day, August Bees was legally married to uh, Ms. Van Zandt. Well, the the former Ms. Van Zandt. So could the sheriff then keep her away? No, no, because now she's uh, next of kin. So he can't. Ah. (laughs) Following this wedding that was held in the Van Zandt home, a mob attacked. What a way to end a wedding. You're never going to forget. Look at our one picture because it's 1880. Yes, you will see uh, burning torches in the background. (laughs) We like to pretend those are candles. (laughs) A small number of explosive charges were found in Louis Ling's cell uh, in sort of a routine sweep. (laughs) I love that he's making bombs in his cell. (laughs) (laughs) Look, 
When you've got a hobby, you commit. How does he find the things to make the bombs in prison? He's a resourceful young man. Like, this guy's making a bomb out of a leaf and a hairball. Louis Ling is the MacGyver of uh, 19th century anarchists. I love him so much. See, when the news of this got out, it was very sensationalist. Uh, People afraid the anarchists are just going to blow up the prison and lead an escape. And then the revolution's going to come. Just you wait. But these were really small, mostly harmless blasting caps. It really is just a guy who loves bombs. (laughs) Just needs something to fiddle with. Yeah. So on no- November 10th, the same day uh, two of his compatriots were granted clemency, uh, Ling exploded one in his own mouth. Ah! No! And died by his own hand rather than go to the gallows. Well, I mean, that's the way to do it, but ooh, ooh. He had ooh. time to write uh, Hurrah for Anarchy in German in his own blood <laughs> on the cell wall before prison guards found him. Still my favorite guy. He's like, I'm going out good. I mean, first, baller move. (laughs) But second, it makes me think about how these folks were, quote, guarded. Like, you hear an explosion, and some guy's got enough time to recover from the shock, and then write, like, a four-word German phrase in blood on the wall before you come across him. Yeah. These guards were in no hurry to find out what harm befell Louis Ling. Yeah. I mean, we're like, his little explosion's going off a lot, and they're like, oh, he's just doing another one. It's fine. Whatever. That's the only explanation that makes them sound at all like humane jailers. That, or they're just like freaking idiots who are like... I I suppose. I don't know what that was. Someone probably dropped a pot. Whatever. (laughs) The next day, November 11th, 1887. Uh, The day before, a very busy day. Seven uh, condemned men became one dead man, two for life in prison, and four remaining condemned men. That day, the 11th, they were hanged. Uh, 300 armed police surrounded the county jail in fear of an uprising or rescue attempt. Uh, the condemned had already rejected all rescue plots. Like, there, there is evidence of people, like, sneaking in notes, like, we're going to get you out. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Uh, they preferred to die as martyrs. Nina Van Zant, uh, I suppose I should say Nina Spees, was turned away. Lucy Parsons and her children were uh, not only denied permission to enter the jail, they were then locked in basement cells in a police office and strip-searched. What? The Parsons' children were not adults. They were young, young children. Yeah. 200 witnesses were allowed to watch the men die, not their wives, but they did include a representative of the German government. Lest That an, makes up for it. Lest an international incident uh, uh, be set off. So uh, I, I think it's only fair to listen to these men's final words. I'm not sure in which order they were, but this is the order I'm reading them for dramatic effect. Okay. Uh, Adel Fisher's last words were, hurrah for anarchy. This is the happiest moment of my life. George Engel said the exact same. However, he said it in German. August Spies, eloquent as always, the time will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you strangle today. That's what he would say. Albert Parsons, chief orator of the uh, English-speaking branch of these movements, Will I be allowed to speak, O men of America? Let me speak, Sheriff Matson. Let the voice of the people be heard. Oh, and that's when the trapdoor fell and the noose uh, snapped around his neck. So I guess the answer is no. You will not be allowed to speak. They're not going to let you. 
So says Omen of America. The aftermath of the event. Yep. Uh, after they are hanged, 20,000 people attend the funeral in what is now Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. Mm-hmm. A monument was erected there in 1893, eng- engraved with Spees' last words, the time will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you strangle today. A monument to the police had already been erected in the square in 1889. Of course. They got on that one lickety-split. The Illinois legislature immediately moved to, to pass the Cole Anti-Boycott Law and the Merit Conspiracy Law. The Merit Conspiracy Law made it possible to convict someone of a conspiracy without connecting them to the actual crime, including people who spread anything considered encouraging or incendiary, even if it could not be proven the person who did the act ever heard the words. Uh... No. So you can see that this law is sort of made to retroactively like, okay, if we ever have to do this Haymarket trial again. How can we do this faster? This time we'll make what we did legal. Legal and faster. Or at least more legal. The jury selection was still a a fiasco, etc. June 26th, 1893, years after the execution, uh, there's a new Illinois governor, Altgeld, who pardons Fielden, Schwab, and Nieb, the, the three surviving convicted men. Mm-hmm. Uh, Schwab and Nieb were later buried when they died of, of natural causes, along with the hanged men in Forest Park. Fielden is the only one buried separately. He's with his family in Colorado, uh, the, the only one to not be under that monument. Uh, the industrialists raised over $30,000 for the Policemen's Benevolent Association as sort of thanks for their efforts in all this, uh, mostly to thank Bonfield, and an equal amount for the families of the seven dead officers. Uh, Cyrus McCormick, the guy who uh, is most to blame for the shooting that led to the rally that ended with the bombing, etc., mm-hmm. donated $250 himself. He, he was trying to increase profits, after all. You, you can't go furthering that away on donations to the Policeman's Benevolent Association. Of course not. Of course not. So, like you said, Harrison's voted out of office. New mayor appoints a new police chief who gave Bonfield a free hand to harass and intimidate labor organizers. Of course! But not for long. You see, in 89, the Chicago Times would expose Bonfield running a protection racket and taking bribes from gambling dens and brothels. <laughs> Good job, Chicago Times. Good job. Lucy Parsons, as mentioned earlier, became a leader in the labor and anarchist movements and was arrested many, many times in her life. She sounds really cool. She does. Uh, One detail about Lucy Parsons' life, uh, which in part explains some of the blowback against uh, Albert Parsons. Lucy was black. Oh. She never said so herself, her official autobiography, uh, but it is an open secret that these statements about uh, simply being uh, mostly Native American in her heritage is just to try to navigate 1800s America a bit easier for herself and her family. She died in a house fire in 1942, and the police seized all her books and papers immediately after. What, what happened to them? Did- I don't know. I, I would hope they were eventually recovered and put in some sort of library, but I've learned not to hope for the best in Haymarket matters. Nope. Nothing of the square remains. It's an indistinct block near uh, the Ogilvy Transportation Center. There, there's a hot dog restaurant. Nobody knows who threw the bomb to this day. 
Uh, there is a conspiracy theory that it's one of Bonfield's men in order to like. Uh, That's what I thought immediately. Light the touch paper. That I don't believe. I don't think as uh, bloodthirsty and uh, power hungry as Bonfield may have been, I can't see him putting police lives at risk. At least not his own police that rode with him. I guess. So while we'll never know exactly who did it or their exact motivations, therefore, I think it's much, much more likely that it was a militant anarchist who probably was arrested because they arrested nearly all of them in the city and let go. Because they didn't know it was him. And they were too busy focusing on my favorite person ever. Yeah. The police monument built on the Haymarket site was routinely vandalized, uh, especially any time there there was a strong labor movement. Uh, This led to several bombings of the statue itself in the 1960s by the the weathermen. It was moved to the police training academy for safety, for its safety. Uh, The city unveiled a memorial to the event on the site, a sculpture by Mary Brogger, in 2004. Took you a while. Took you a while. I'll say it's not a very good monument. It's not particularly good art, if you ask me. It's a bunch of very abstracted clay-like figures. Like they—they they look like meeples from a board game, basically. Yeah. On a much more realistic wagon, and uh, is placed on the site where the wagon was, where the speeches were being made. I should say was, because it has been temporarily moved to make room for the construction of a apartment building. Is it going to be put back? They plan to have it back in time for Labor Day 2017. Will it end up being like in the lobby of this apartment building or something? I, I guess they're building sort of a landscape around it to turn it into even more of a memorial to the oh. history of it. But in the meantime, the only thing that's there is a Pokemon Go gym. <laughs> That's how you know that statues have been moved. Yeah. Okay. Which, I mean, it, it's just a memorial statue and not a particularly good one. It's just as neutral as the word affair, if you're going to ask for my art criticism. But I love having physical history. I like markers. Being able to say, I am standing in the very place where X mm-hmm. is valuable to me. And for now, you cannot do that because there are very busy men building a, an apartment building right there. I understand. But still. Well, it also makes people who are walking by stop and look at it. And then they right. might read the plaque and they might be like, oh, I didn't know this. Mm-hmm. Memorial type statues with a plaque is more eye catching than just a plaque. Like the Eastland disaster plaque. How many times did I walk past that in my life? I still miss it, even though I know where it is. <laughs> it needs a statue. Meanwhile, in the present, anti-union sentiment continues without interruption. Uh, any good organized labor has done is denied until enough time passes that folks can say, yes, but we've moved beyond that now. Uh, the crackdown came hardest on immigrant labor. I mean, how many of those indicted people, how many of those hanged people had English last names? Uh, and ethnic tensions still divide the working class in America. Uh, the link between state power and industrial interests was laid bare, right? It, it is undeniable that the police are acting, that the police are in the pocket of McCormick, of Palmer, all these folks. Yeah, that was the way it operated. What do you mean past tense? And still, <laughs> still. Uh, I mean, you mentioned their names, though, so we're talking right. about the past Th- those, tense. Those specific men are dead, but there are still industrialists, uh, yes. and uh, I guess now we call them CEOs. 
Uh, <laughs> language has moved on. Yes. Although it, it did act as a touch point, a flashpoint for uh, the rest of the 19th century labor movement. Like, they were martyrs. Uh, the 40-hour work week was indeed instituted. They did finally achieve that goal. Uh, care to guess when that was, dear? Quite a while later. 1937, as part of the New Deal. As part of a later part of the New Deal, even. Part two. Newer deal. <laughs> Once again, Lucy Parsons, the only significant player to live to see it. But again, like we mentioned, that 40-hour work week, uh, if any of our listeners work in software development, that doesn't mean much for crunch. Uh, any of you working in retail and uh, having to do a closing shift immediately before an opening one and checking up, yeah, that is probably legal in your state. Yep. Uh, there there were times I had six hours between shifts, but they were different days, so it was okay. So clearly, while these victories have been won, it's unfair and uh, false to say that the the fight is over or that there is no use to bring to bringing uh democracy into the workplace essentially using your ability as providers of labor to negotiate for for the terms on which you sell your work I was just going to say I think I think nowadays even though information is more readily available I don't think a lot of people know almost the labor laws are yeah. You know, working those types of jobs for understanding when your break is and like some of the stuff I experienced just working in retail where you'd be like, okay, you have to come back in six hours. Well, it's going to take me an hour to get home and an hour to get back here. Like what? Yeah. Or, okay, well, you're here. So you get your 30 minute lunch break right now. Well, wait, I've been here 30 minutes and I'm going oh. to be here eight hours and you're giving me my lunch break now. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, we got to get all the breaks. Like there, there are things that. Like, those things can't be legal. <laughs> right. But so wh while we, we always encourage, While we always encourage you to uh, learn your history, also learn your rights. Uh, for whatever country you happen to be in, and Americans, your state varies a lot. Yes. And not, not everyone is abusing their power as an employer, but there is a lot of stuff that people, including myself, have let slide mm -hmm. that, you know, isn't right. Gotta stand up. Fight the power. What have you learned here? Learned a lot. Yeah. I learned where Haymarket actually was. Yeah. I didn't know that's where it was. Lear learned a little bit of geography in our history show. Yeah. You know, I always, I always knew about the event. This is what it is, but I never... It's actually one I've never looked into the details of. Mm-hmm. So it is my episode. You admit it. Yeah, but it's one I sure would have enjoyed talking about. <laughs> All right. I learned that people can be horrible. and In new and exciting ways legal system just makes me groan. But I kind of already knew that, so, you know. We will be right back with some of your mail and some business. So here's one more song from Haymarket, the Anarchist Songbook. Oh. 
Okay, what'd you think about that one? Don't cry for me, Argentina! I I guess there was a workers' party, but they were kind of quasi-fascist. It's not really... Kapow! Die! Better? I mean, technically, that was in this. Okay, so... (laughs) In our last episode, we talked about a campaign... Uh, to raise funds for uh, Hurley Children's Hospital in Flint, Michigan, called Gextra Life. Uh, that was phenomenally successful. Thank mm-hmm. all of you who came to spend some time with us uh, over your holiday weekend. Thank all of you who, who found it in your hearts and in your budgets to donate. Uh, we raised over 27000 and counting. Yeah. What's that? That's right. Donations don't close until early November. You've still got another month to help make more sick kids in Flint's dreams come true. Our goal was $2,500. We've gotten over 11 times that. Yes. And you can bring us to 12 and beyond. We we have heard from the hospital that they are thrilled about this donation. Overwhelmed. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it may be the largest donation they've ever received. That's what I heard from Josh's dad. (laughs) So we are making a huge difference for them. And if you have a couple dollars to spare, you can help make it even bigger. Um, They they sent us an adorable thank you video. So I'm going to to quote it and, and say thank you for putting your money where the miracles are. Again, the still ongoing, if you missed it, if you're interested, the episode description at historyhoneys.podbean.com will have a link to the donation page and also the YouTube archive of the stream itself. You get to watch us slowly lose our minds playing 90s video games. 24 hours of it. If you're making a donation now, you uh, are not eligible for any of those giveaways, but you should check them out because there's some really cute things that we made. Mm-hmm. But you'll never be ineligible for uh, helping sick kids in Flint. That's true. Unless you're listening to this after November when donations close. Hey, hey, I bet Hurley it- will take personal checks. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> So thanks again to everybody. Uh, also last week, I asked people to share with us their favorite public speech. So uh, we got some answers, and we'd like to share them with you. James sent us an email that their favorite speech is uh, not just because of the content of it, but the context. The speech that they're referring to is by um, then-Senator James Garfield about the importance of improving race relations in the U.S. at a rally in New York. He says, the content is fantastic, but uh, what he really likes is that it was the only major speech in the campaign uh, and arguably won because of it, because New York was the swing state uh, that, that decided the election in 1880. Points out that there's an episode of American Experience that focuses on this. Uh, the episode is called Murder of a President. Um, in season 28. So if you are interested in learning more about that, check it out. Thank you, James. We couldn't do an episode on socialism without giving a shout out to public television. Yeah. So so thanks, James. Glenn writes with sort of a lightning round of catching up on uh, old episode prompts. Glenn does not recognize the story of the Edmund Fitzgerald, though uh, his partner does. His favorite play is Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' An Octoroon, which is about race relations, but both sides of the abolitionist split found something they could connect with in it, and the author went to his grave without making a statement so as not to alienate any paying customers. 
he recommends Anais Mitchell's Hades Town, uh, more of a concept album than a musical, but hey, that's how Jesus Christ Superstar started. Uh, it's and a Vita. It takes the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, puts it in a vaguely Great Depression-esque setting, and goes from there. Uh, his favorite ad is uh, going pretty old school. Gladiatorial posters in ancient Rome. Uh, just big <laughs> signs saying, here's what we're doing. Uh, X number of fighters. Well, I guess that would be 10 in this case. And uh, here I am. Pay attention to me, the editor. Uh, they even gave uh, initial credit to whoever inscribed the ad. So m maybe they had their own organized labor in Rome. <laughs> uh, Glenn is a sucker for wooden roller coasters. Ugh. You like torture. Nine times out of ten, they hurt. <laughs> <laughs> also related to the Anabaptist episode, Glenn points out that publicly debating matters of God has been standard Judaic practice for quite some time, like the entire rabbinical period. That's a lot of Judaism. And Germantown, which we mentioned as a separate place uh, in the history of Philadelphia, has been absorbed by the city. It's now a Philadelphia neighborhood right near where Glenn lives. So go find Glenn on the street. Buy him a sandwich. Hey, tell us where we should eat. Yeah, in Philadelphia. Glenn, tell us where we should eat. We're going to be there. In October. Tell me where I eat. I already know everything I want to do. I just don't know where to eat. I have like four <laughs> ice cream places I want to go to, but no like real food. I guess there's four food groups. There's chocolate. There's strawberry. Pistachio. And then and there's the place that rolls the ice cream, apparently. <laughs> That's its own food group. Sean writes to us about his uh, hometown amusement park, Fantasyland, in Hastings, New Zealand, pretty clearly riding the sort of zeitgeist of the Disney park's land of Fantasyland, and the general idea of this is a land where fantastical things exist. It, it sounds like a lovely place, and uh, it has recently been uh, converted into a water park, though some of its older attractions survived the switch. So thank you, Sean. Tammy sent us an email. She loves our podcast. Uh, Thanks, Tammy. And that not only Tammy listens, but her sons. Thanks, Tammy's sons. Exciting. Love that we're bringing families together. Aww. People telling us about how they listen with their moms, listen with their kids. So sweet. We need somebody to listen with their weird uncle. <laughs> That's my favorite family member. Tammy's favorite favorite show so far was the Anabaptist episode. Learned quite a bit and are excited to uh, explore Munster in Germany when they go again. Gotta see them cages. Vote for best public speech is uh, Susan B. Anthony's speech on women's suffrage. Tammy's great-grandmother was a silent sentinel. So some family history that's connected there. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Thanks, Thanks, Tammy. Darnell writes in. You might remember Darnell as the person who was so attentive in our uh, pre-launch hype. Uh, he guessed that our first episode would be about Mackinac. Yeah. Good job. Darnell will always remember us uh, giving him a shout out for that. It apparently touched him deeply. Well, you're still getting a shout out. It never ends. Uh, Darnell's favorite public speech is by Teddy Roosevelt. Not so much because of what it's about, but because it's uh, this, the, the time he was famously shot in the chest and his folded up speech, along with some other items in his pocket, blocked the bullet. That's impressive. <laughs> That's a good speech right there. This is stories like this are why Theodore Roosevelt is an American hero that everybody loves. 
It was in his third campaign for president, running as an independent third party. He tanked Taft's chances of getting reelected by splitting the traditional Republican base of the time. And so that's what got Woodrow Wilson to waltz into the White House. We all know how that went. Mm-hmm. If you're a boat. Darnell also really likes the Magic Kingdom and Space Mountain. I like Space Mountain, too. Space it's Mountain's good. great. Thanks, Darnell. <laughs> Ian sent us an email. Ian's uh, favorite speech goes to the essay speech done by Mark Twain called On the Decay of the Art of Lying. It was a speech that was composed for the Historical and Antiquarium Club of Hartford, Connecticut. It contemplates the idea that we should not only lie as to not hurt others around us, but embrace the idea of lying and to consider lying an art form. To quote Mark Twain, lying is universal. We all do it. We all must do it. Therefore, the wise thing is for us uh, diligently to train ourselves to lie thoughtfully, judiciously, to lie with a good object and not an evil one. Sounds like a really interesting speech because it, uh, as Ian points out, it questions whether... Um, Something we see as morally wrong is actually morally wrong. In and it's every always, case, yeah. Is it always that way? So that well, sounds really cool. For a guy who makes a living writing fiction, I guess it's a pretty interesting question. Mark Twain, Master of Lies. Thanks, Ian. Uh, Paul writes in, as a patriotic Brit, I have to say that the speeches of Winston Churchill, and now Paul will never listen again. Uh, <laughs> but- I'm, I'm staring at him for you. I'm giving him, like, the death glare, Paul. Okay. But Paul wants to point out uh, the speeches of Winston Churchill. I'm surprised uh, he's the only one because he's one of those famously witty people. So famous that many of the things he said he didn't actually say. But he is the only world leader to be awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, pretty sure. Uh, Paul's favorite wartime speech is the first one he delivered to the House of Commons upon being appointed prime minister. So uh, he, he closed the speech with this rousing call to action. You ask, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be for without victory, there is no survival. So thank you, Paul. Bob sent us an email. Bob, I'm glad that you enjoyed the Disney episodes. Oh yes, there will be more. In regards to the prompt, uh, doesn't have a particular one, but really enjoys comedians that are invited to do graduation speeches Mm -hmm. and how they're honest about the world, but make you laugh and give you hope. Yeah, those are usually pretty good. Stephen Colbert did not speak at my graduation. It was like two years later or something, right? And the year before. And the year before. I have anyone famous. My school got like, they had Jane Lynch recently. What? I didn't, we didn't get anyone at my graduation. Like, it was just like the three valedictorians for like the multiple colleges, but no famous person. How dare they? At least that I remember. <laughs> they must not have been very famous if I can't remember them. I just had some sportscaster. But anyways, thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Uh, yes, usually those speeches are very good. Our good buddy Purin sent us a email, of course. His favorite speech is an actual speech that was delivered by Lincoln 
that took place supposedly in Bloomington, Illinois in 1856, but there are no notes of the actual speech that exist. The local news reported it, that a speech took place, but nothing on the content. So that has obviously led to a lot of, like, speculation. What did he say? Especially because it was delivered uh, before the first state convention of Illinois, uh, supposedly, like, launching Lincoln's career. Uh, he also says, P.S., aliens did it. All of it. That makes sense. Probably. I, will, I believe probably. it. It was probably yeah. aliens. So thanks. Thanks, um, Corin. Rebecca uh, sent us an email uh, catching up on a few of our past podcasts. Hates ads. All kinds. All of them. That doesn't mean we're not steeped in them every day. <laughs> yep. It doesn't mean they don't reflect things about the, our world. <laughs> it's very sad to hear about some of the changes uh, in Magic Kingdom, like Aliens Encounter uh, being gone and some of the things at Epcot. Also, the closing of the Electric Light Parade. I know. I know. Did mention, uh, Rebecca mentions a sub going on a submarine ride in uh, 1983. Which is totally possible. Which is totally possible. That closed in 94. Yeah, the 2000 Leagues ride didn't close till 94, so it could have been that. Um, I might have screwed something up in the edit. I'm not sure where this confusion came from. Yeah. And then uh, also mentions Anabaptists episode that knows a lot about uh, the Lutheran part of the Reformation, uh, but wasn't very familiar with the Mennonite parts of it, but does have a great aunt who's very proud of Mennonite heritage and tells lots of stories, which sound very interesting. (laughs) My aunt's pretty great, too. Thanks, Rebecca. Nelson uh, is also a Chicago transplant. Hey, Nelson. They're going to cheat a bit and share two favorite speeches. Uh, the first is Robert Kennedy's speech in Indianapolis the night Martin Luther King was killed, in part because uh, so much of it seems off the cuff, just in the moment, uh, reflecting on his experiences uh, in front of a predominantly African-American crowd. His other favorite speech is Malcolm X's The Ballot or the Bullet. Nelson talks about how he believes Malcolm X always got kind of a bad rap in in terms of how he's remembered by history uh, and the average American. I think that's exactly true. Like, for some reason, we need to have the bad civil rights guy, and Malcolm X gets cast in that role when that's not who he was as a person or what he achieved. There is a sad and strange trend that when leaders for social change die, their history gets rewritten by the very people they were struggling against. Uh, thanks, Nelson. Our friend uh, Dreckel sent us an email with a suggestion for an episode, so I'm not going to tell you what it is, just in case we use it, because it sounds pretty cool. You like this one. I do. So thank you for the idea. Thanks, Drackle. I'd like to thank everybody for listening and being such being such a great audience. We love uh, hearing from you in emails. And what's that email address? Our email address is historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And we love hearing from you on Twitter and Facebook. It's great to interact with you. While we're talking about emails, do you have a prompt for our next episode, love? Yes. Something like a local legend of like, oh, my town has this weird story about this Bigfoot. Or like, we're known because this building fell down for no reason. Or like, tell me some weird fact you know about some area by you. 
Yeah, give, give us your uh, hometown curiosities. Yes, your oddity. Give me an oddity. It doesn't even have to be from where you live. It could be like your favorite one that you know of someplace else. Oh, we're going to get a thousand of those. Probably. Probably. But I want to open I'm it up. I'm so excited some... to read all of them. Yeah, oddities are cool. So give mm-hmm. me an oddity. That's 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 the way of like phrasing it I was looking for. <laughs> uh, while you're getting in touch with us, help us get in touch with other people. Give us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us uh, climb those rankings, get in people's uh, uh, recommendations. It helps us so much. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Spread the word. Tell your friend. Tell your mom. Tell your crazy uncle. Yes. I need a crazy <laughs> uncle or a cool cousin story in one of these for, from somebody. Tell us how we helped bridge the gap. Between your crazy uncle and your cool cousin. Yeah. Uh, again, Gextra Life is still collecting donations. You can see all the relevant links in the show notes. And uh, we love sharing every other Tuesday with you folks. I'm Elena. And I'm Grant. History's better with with your your honey. honey.